Hi there, and welcome to Women Travel, a podcast about the places women have been and the things they did there. My name is Morgan Esberg. And I'm Annika Sieverts, and today we have a special guest is Dr. Sieverts. You want to say hello? Hello. So, Katya, what kind of doctor are you so everyone can get to know you? Not a medical one, <laughs> which is why I'm going to survive. Um, I, I have a PhD in comparative literature uh, from the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, my dissertation was about like folklore and literature in the 19th century Russia in England. Mm, all kinds of creepy stuff, like creepy children mostly. I was looking at like changelings, that stuff. Um, yeah, and... That's pretty much who I am. And I thought <laughs> literature and folklore, like, what else do you want to know? Um, I'm curious because um, I, Annika didn't really explain this to me, but were you born in Russia and then moved? Yeah, I was born in Kazakhstan. So you were born in Kazakhstan, and then how did you end up in Austin, Texas? Oh, I came to Austin for PhD. Yeah, simple, simple as that. Okay, that's it. No further questions. Um, so for the record, how many books have you published in total? Um, I published uh, 11 books in Russian, um, so quite a few. And um, I probably have about like four or five of them. Everything else is just like been given to friends and never returned. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so like um, I have a very modest selection of my own books represented on my own like bookshelf. Um, and all of them were published in Russia, in Russian, and they deal with the 19th century um, England one way or the other. Um, it's like either novels or uh, nonfiction, all that jazz. Yeah, like tour, tour guides of telling Russians where to go and where to eat, that kind of stuff? N- no, like where not to go and what not to eat, more like. <laughs> it's like... It's like if you happen to be in the 19th century London, like, you know, around like 50, 1850s, 60s, 70s, like where you should not go, what you should not eat, like with whom you should not talk if you don't want to get punched in the face, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. How to exercise a ghost, <laughs> that stuff. You, your studies definitely in Victorian history and um, yep. in England and Russia. So. Can you give us uh, and the um, Americans listening a summary of key differences between Victorian England and Victorian Russia, please? So we don't really have Victorian Russia because we don't have Queen Victoria, surprise, right? Um, (laughs) um, Sorry, that time period. Yeah, but, um, well, and that's the main difference. And we hit it on the head. Yay, it doesn't exist. Anyways, um, so in Victorian England, and by the way, if we think about Victorian England, we tend to think of it as like this chunk, this monolithic chunk with everybody being like upholstered, being very prim, um, very, I don't know, hypocritical, which means like they're prim, but they don't actually believe in it. Um, that's not uniform either because, I mean, you can look at very distinctive periods in Victorian England, which basically um, lasted from the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign in 1837 and ended with her death, like, in the beginning of, like, 20th century almost. Um, and, like, you know, when she started um, started off, uh, the kind of, like, the reverberations of the 18th century was still in the air, so people still remember what it's like, you know, to live 
during even the Regency period where everybody was sleeping with everybody. Uh, so it didn't just like Queen Victoria comes to throne, she marries Albert, and then everybody just like forgets what sex is. <laughs> um, and then we have that middle period, which is very fecund, very productive period where, you know, everything gets buzzing. We have... Um, Railways, electricity, electricity, a little too early for that, but gaslight, uh, railways, uh, agriculture is expanded, basically have an industrial revolution at full speed and everybody's like all of a sudden just obsessed with work and Prince Albert is kind of like really an epitome of that, like how we should just work, 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 work ourselves into the grave. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and be die absolutely unappreciated. And then we have, of course, the fin de siècle, the end of the century, where decadence sets in, and we have Oscar Wilde, and we have basically uh, talks about more identity, uh, on like maybe homosexual identity, for example. We have experiments in art and literature, but I mean, Queen Victoria is still there. I mean, so the, the good old woman, I mean, she lives through all of that. So all of this is Victorian England, right? Uh, in, Ru- in Russia, uh, we, basically it would be Imperial Russia, not Tsarist Russia, whatever you want to call it. And there were like, s- Queen Victoria outlived, like, let me count, one Tsar, that was Nicholas and Alexander II and Alexander III. And she did not outlive uh, Nicholas II, to whom her granddaughter was married. Um, so we have basically several Tsars and each one of them has his own peculiar, peculiar personality. But it's really not defined by a Tsar. So we don't call it like being, I don't know, Alexander the Secondian period, <laughs> right? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I don't know. Like, yeah. So um, we basically have political or social political tendencies that are unfolding no matter who is occupying the throne at that point. And we see the rise of um, revolutionary thought, for example. Um, and it is, that is the kind of the vector that will be moving, 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 and will get us close to, to the Bolshevik revolution in 1917. But like, you know, the, the kernel of that is, is born there, like in the mid 19th century. Brilliant. And, uh, because you brought up Alexander, the Alexanders, um, Alexander the first was credited with releasing like 50 million serfs while the civil war was going on in America. Is that correct? It was Alexander the second. Uh, but I mean, close enough. I mean, there were three of them. Who cares? Um, see, this is why I fact check. Yeah. Like, whatever. Um, so anyways, um, yeah. So, um, yes, Alexander the second, um, he was an interesting person in and of himself. Uh, his father, Nicholas I, was extremely conservative, very kind of retrograde, it's like the face of Russian reaction. Alexander um, was a much milder person. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that he brought his girlfriend to be wife in the palace when his old wife was dying of cancer there, he actually was an extremely decent guy. Um, and, I mean, it, it happened. You overlook that it, one you, thing. Yes. Yeah. You, you're like, you know, let's just look, focus on the grander picture there, right? Um, so, <laughs> yes, he abolished uh, serfdom in 1861, and that actually figures prominently in Sofia Kovalevska writing the, um, the one of the women uh, whom we're going to, like, talk about today also. Um, but the problem was that um, kind of like the problem similar to what happened in the States too, is that um, they didn't think it through 
and they didn't think what would be like the most beneficial for peasants. Like, how do we make sure that peasants are taken care of? How do we make sure that uh, they have sustenance that they can basically live and prosper, right? Um, so they were kind of released without land, and land was what really was the basis of peasant identity. So they more or less created a like a nation of sharecroppers because land still belonged to landlords. So what do you do? So you rent it, then you kind of pay the rent and all that stuff. And that majorly um, dissatisfied the peasants. And that also even more majorly dissatisfied the liberal intelligentsia, um, the, the revolutionary class, uh, who basically saw that as cheating, like, what, what, what have you guys done for the peasants? You've done zilch. And that's basically what really started that revolutionary momentum. And it cost Alexander II dear, because we know that he was murdered in St. Petersburg, for all that he has done for the peasants, right? Like, splat, um, threw a bomb at him. So, yeah. I mean, fun, right? Like, Russian history yeah. is like Game of Thrones <laughs> without, what's his name? Without Tyrion, because we don't... Actually, we, we have a... Sh well, we have a Tyrion, too. Okay, never mind. <laughs> so, just like pure Game of Thrones. Um. <laughs> Incest and all. Yeah, we, we, and that is there too. Hoo -hoo, Alexander the First and his <laughs> sister Yekaterina, who knows what they were doing. Anyways, um. So you've recommended two women that you would love to talk about today. Uh, we're going to start with Nadezhda mm -hmm. Dorova. Uh, well, first of all, can I have you kind of tell us why why she is important to you? Absolutely. So I chose two women from the 19th century. And if you want, I can do like some other time, another another like talk about uh, two more women from the uh, 20th century the, who I think are absolutely amazing. So um, Nadezhda Durova is a character. She is absolutely phenomenal. Um, she uh, was um, a war hero. She, uh, depending on how you define like an officer, she, you can consider her first female officer in Russia. Um, but I mean, just like her, her rank wasn't what exactly they would have called an, an officer in those days. Um, so uh, she was a cross-dresser. Most likely she was uh, a transgendered person, but we cannot tell for sure. Um, but it, it, just, it's, it kind of transpires from how she talked about herself later uh, in her life that she was transgendered. Um, and, unless, of course, she saw uh, masculinity more of a status thing, which also could be a possibility. So it wasn't much of a gender, but, you know, if she wanted to be respected, she had to become a man. As she got older, she required other people to use her, her male names, right? Yes, absolutely. So she, um, to the point, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk about that later. But anyways, just to kind of, to give you a gist of who we're talking about. So, Nadezhda Durova, she was born in a military family and was a military brat. So her father was a Hussar officer, her mom eloped with him and kind of had a miserable life because they basically traveled from garrison to garrison. She wasn't used to that life at all. And she was really taking it on her daughter to the point where when Nadezhda was uh, little, and here's, we're going to gasp, she was, they were in a carriage and mother held her and Nadezhda was screaming and screaming like babies do. And she just tossed her out of the window. 
What? Literally. Yeah, I read that. <laughs> yes. She tossed her out of the window and uh, basically the soldiers like picked up her blooded body and like, put it right back oh my in. God. So, <laughs> so her father basically is like, oh, this is not looking good. Child protective services. Oh, wait, we don't have child protective services. All right. 19th century. So, um, so he decided to um, give her basically give her to one of the uh, soldiers to be raised. So he was, she was raised by an old hussar who taught her to ride horse, to basically use a sword. So she was basically growing up as, you know, as a brat in more than one way. Uh, her mom kind of like tried to tune in when Nadezhda was a teenager and like, hmm, well, you kind of need to learn your needlework. You need to learn to sew. You need to learn to da dance. And Nadezhda was like, oh God, really, do I have to do that? So she absolutely hated all things, like all feminine crafts, like all the accomplishments. Um, when she was 18, she was married, of course, without asking her it was an arranged marriage to some random guy she had a child by him a boy and then she pretty much left him she couldn't divorce because you had to have very serious grounds for divorce so she basically left the child with him and she went to her parents her parents were less than happy to have her and then she actually eloped with um with a cossack with a cossack i mean can you imagine like oh no not the cossacks oh yes with a Cossack, and she cross-dressed for that. So she dresses a man, and she, for a while, basically, uh, worked with him, like, as his Batman. But the pro, like, she, and she was thinking about staying in the military. Okay, a uh, million dollar question. Why do you think she was not able to stay with Cossacks? You can, like, invoke all, like, Russian stereotypes, like, stereotypes about Cossacks. Face. Think about their face. They are not clean-shaven. Facial hair. Facial hair, guys. Oh, there we go. Okay, she wasn't able to grow a beard. Yes. No, she wasn't. And <laughs> according to, like, yes. Yeah, you earned, like, a symbolic million dollars. But anyways, so according to different, like, um, regulations for different... Um, are, you know, military units. Uh, some of them were supposed to have mustache, some of them were supposed to be clean-shaven, some of them were supposed to have beards and mustache. So she's like, well, that's something that's not gonna happen. Um, and, they, and they will boot you out if you don't do it, they'll boot you out. So she's like, I need to find a regiment where they actually require you to be clean-shaven. And those were Ulan's uh, and she joined them eventually. So um, she is a fascinating writer. She is, really comes out as a person who is both brave and uh, compassionate. Um, she loved her horse, Alcides, um, who basically was the horse like that was given to her when she still was um, a child. And she writes so much about her horse and she's just so just loving towards him um, that she honestly would have made a better army vet than um than a soldier because she just doesn't like the idea of killing people she likes the idea of saving people and she likes the idea of helping animals so really she should have been a medic or a vet she, like that wasn't but i mean clearly that wasn't the profession open for her so she um rides that horse she participates in uh, major battles of the napoleonic wars so we're talking about once again uh 1806 1807 um she witnesses the uh, the Treaty of Tilsit between uh, the peace treaty between Russia and France. Then basically something happens 
kind of around that time, which is absolutely mind-blowingly fascinating. And that also shows you just that gender is really a constructed category whom anybody can construct and deconstruct, right? So um, she, before going to a major battle, she actually writes to her father saying goodbye to him and just saying that um, she loves him, she's very sorry. She left her dress by the river, so he might have thought that she drowned herself. They had no word from her for several years. And that letter gets in, like, reaches him. Uh, He immediately starts a search party for her and, contacts her command and then she's found out just but just her commander and she is sent to St. Petersburg to meet the Tsar because like you need to you know talk reason into that girl the Tsar meets her now Tsar is a crazy woman either by the way Tsar has sex with anything that moves as long as it's vaguely female um so he, he didn't have sex with her though so lucky she like we don't have this nasty like you know like yeah which is amazing but by the way be ever like be like alexander the first why should you be like alexander the first so you are a tsar the emperor of russia you have this uh girl who is a war hero but she's you know trembling she's scared she's been you know harassed she doesn't know what awaits her and you're talking to her be- be- uh, behind the closed door so what do you do do you grab her mm-hmm. no you don't do you grab her boobs no you don't you basically say, okay, you are amazing, you're a war hero. Here's the St. George's Cross to you because you saved an officer. Um, I am going to give you a military rank. I'm going to call you Alexander Alexandrov after me. You can keep your dad's name. Uh, th- that's patronymic. And I'm going to send you off to be a hussar. And on your paper, it will state that you're a man. How about that? That's amazing. I actually have a, a question about uh, the czar naming her. How cool is that? Because uh, she had the title as the like the Amazon in the army, uh, which I, I love that imagery. But also like mm-hmm. giving her like the king's name but in a different variation is that like almost kind of like an adoption into the royal family yes almost well not not legally but he basically alexander means like of alexander so he basically like says that she's his in a way that uh he is her patron he protects her but what's brilliant about that is like what is absolutely mind-boggling first of all he went along with her gender identity not only did he go alone with her gender identity, he did everything he could to protect her gender identity. He made paperwork for her that would protect her gender identity, and he didn't spill the beans. So when she went to her next uh, garrison, they didn't know that she was not a male. And in fact, she had to leave it because the commander was mad at her for not marrying his daughter, who basically had a major crush I, on I read that too, and I was wondering, do you think later in life, did she have like a female lover? Mm, nothing is it's 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 not known about that at all like she um see, see once again it it is problematic because she did not want to be seen as gay because that would make her look unnatural at the period but being essentially this male officer just made her quirky made her original so you have to, you know, choose your battles. And uh, later, so she basically, uh, she was wounded. She retired. Her father begged her to retire. So she did in 1816. She went um, 
to basically live in a small town with her brother. She wrote that memoir that was um, picked up by Alexander Pushkin, um, the most celebrated um, Russian poet of the 19th century, who basically kind of became her literary agent in a way. He really promoted her, did a lot to uh, to help her. And that book sold like hot pies. Everybody wanted to know about uh, the called the cavalry maiden Nadezhda Durova. Because a cavalry maiden or Russian Amazon. It's been reprinted and reprinted under different titles. And she lived um, alone. She didn't want to reconcile with her husband. Unfortunately, she also didn't want to reconcile with her son. He wrote to her, he wrote a letter to her when he was about to get married, asking for her blessing. And he called her Maminka, Mommy. And she burned the letter, tossed it into the fire. And not until he wrote to her saying like, Dear Mr. Alexander Vladimirovich, Alexander, could I please marry this girl? Are you okay with that? Uh, so she gave him the blessing. I'm using, by the way, she because she talks about herself in, in female, in, in feminine form. So her pronoun when she talks about herself was that. And... Um, However, at the same time, she insists on being called Alexander Alexandrov and being addressed as essentially as a military officer. So that, that presents a very interesting conundrum of how she sees herself versus how she um, wants others to address her. And once again, because we don't know essentially what her actual identity was, I would, uh, I would still use female with her because... It, it can also, there's a possibility that she was just using that as means of protection. Because being a single woman, an old single woman in Russia, in a small town, was a precarious position to be in. But then being essentially a male officer, you, you have that cloud behind you. It also, like, in modern terms, it almost sounds like she's non-binary. Because she has two different identities that's going on. Yes. I, I honestly think actually calling her non-binary would be the solution to the problem. She, 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 she is a non-binary person who uses uh, female pronouns in her memoir. Um, I don't know what pronoun she used when she was talking to people later in life. I just know her. She didn't want her son to call her mommy. Um, she also was a crazy cat and dog lady. She um, had, like, her house was just, like, chock full with cats and dogs. So, um, I mean, like, how how cooler do you get like you're a war hero and like a cat lady <laughs> how much cooler can you get that's the dream yeah. right there that's a dream right there no it's best life all the hairless cats <laughs> hopefully not but anyways <laughs> yeah so that's Nadia Durava. hope you love her what was the response when she published her memoir as uh working in in the military people um were very excited about that. They really, really um, loved her. Um, but once again, uh, it was the response was so overwhelmingly positive. First of all, because she did not come out as a non-binary person in her memoir. It was more like you know this kind of it's 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 really an old trope of the girl who dresses as a guy and runs away to, you know to serve in the army to find her boyfriend to find her brother just for fun. I mean, little drama girl, um, that kind of stuff. So she kind of... I was going to say, the Mulan story... Yeah, Mulan, yes. Mm -hmm. I believe is as old as the 1400s. It's like Russian's Mulan. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's, it goes that far. So it is a Mulan story. So it's, she's definitely a Russian Mulan. But, but Mulan also, you basically, you, you see what, you know, what, what she is doing. She's also not, she doesn't fit into her society at all. But she doesn't necessarily peddle the fact that she may also be non-binary. Um, or yeah. So because of how the memoir was crafted, it actually made her extremely popular in Russian society. But she also did one more thing. She lied. She lied about her age. She uh, did not mention that she was married. She didn't mention that she had a child who was like probably about five, six years when she ran away. She didn't mention that she ran away with a man. Uh, her memoir basically s- s- makes it up, like those eight years from her marriage to the time where she came to Ulan Harrison Garrison, uh, you know, and asked for admission. That doesn't exist in her memoir at all because she knew if she mentioned that she would have been branded and you know dragged through the coals and just that would have been the end of it. Um, but it's also an interesting psychological fact if you think about it, right? It's like almost she just didn't want that to exist. Like if I, if I write my own identity, if I write my own story, how would I write it? What would I omit? What would I cross out and never, never, never want that to have happened to me? That for me is like the most fascinating aspect of her memoir. What doesn't get said? Yeah, and also like when thank you for sending us excerpts of her memoir. That was that was really fun to read. Um, I noticed there's like even though her and her mom clash heads a lot, I noticed there's a lot of similarities in their personality types. Like her mom runs away to go start a new life against her parents' wishes, and the same thing happens with her daughter. But so it makes me wonder like did her mom despise her because one like she wasn't a son. But also, did she see too much of herself in her daughter? It's like almost like, what is this uh, Disney cartoon? Is it Brave? Yes. It's like, it's like Brave, right? So we have Mulan and we have Brave. Uh, all, you know, kind of unfolding at the same time. I think so. I think, I think you're right. I think she was like, um, like kind of like this mirror being held before her mom. Like slightly warped mirror. Right, because she does those things that she basically everything that her mom has done and maybe came to regret, she's doing that blatantly, but takes it all to the new level. Like, not only am I going to do A, B, and C, but I'm also not going to do learn my embroidery. Yeah, <laughs> take that, mom. No embroidery, <laughs> huh? How about that? No dancing, woohoo! Right? Yeah, there always there had to be some woman who was like, I'm not going to learn how to tat lace doilies. Not gonna learn. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That would have been yeah, exactly. Because she was like, oh my gosh, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Like, you just think about it. It's just like, what on God's earth? Like, why? Like, I respect people who, you know, do lace, but like, for me, that would have been just the end of the world. <laughs> so we can kind of assume that Naidezda was uh, taught how to read uh, from mm-hmm. probably an earlier age. Uh, yeah. I'm under the impression that that was fairly common at that point. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. In in the nobles' families, yes, absolutely. Uh huh. Brilliant. And then later, especially in World War II, Russia was known for including women in its military uh, long before other countries. Yeah. Do you think Dorova played a part in this cultural difference? Uh, no, I don't necessarily think so. She was kind of sadly forgotten. She was kind of seen as a little bit of an oddity. 
to the point which actually makes my blood boil. There's actually a movie called uh, Hussar Ballad. You can see it on YouTube, I'm pretty sure, with Russian uh, subtitles. And it essentially tells, tells Durova's story, but like more like a melodrama, like a guy is involved. And, but it actually has like specific like po- points from her life. And it basically was written by guy wrote a screenplay. And later the author of the screenplay was um, interviewed and asked like, so, you know, you kind of rewrote the story of Nadezhda Durova. That's interesting. Maybe you should have acknowledged her. And he said, no, I have nothing to do with her. She's just, you know, just like weirdo from the 19th century. I didn't even know about her when I was writing this. So who cares? I mean, it's a completely my original idea. And just oh, like, wow. why? 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 Why do you need to, like, obliterate a woman's experience and her work is, like, to create your own work and then basically just say, well, I didn't plagiarize, like, whatever. Just really bizarre. That seems like a very insecure response as well. Like, I'm sure other people brought this up. Oh, yeah. I was shocked when I read it. Uh Uh-huh. Could you please introduce us to your second uh, notable woman today? Absolutely. Uh, Sofia Kovalevskaya. Mm, did for mass probably what Marie Curie did for um, for chemistry for physics. Um, so she uh, was also a member of the gentry, Russian gentry. She was born in 1815 in the family of a general. So she li- lived on um, her father's estate. She had an older sister who is. A- deserves her own mention and I will mention her in good time um she was educated like uh, the noble girls of that time so she was taught to read do embroidery but they also um taught her science classes um taught, taught her math and what's absolutely incredibly fascinating about her just think about the amazing brain that uh, she had um they were changing wallpaper in her room and because they didn't have enough wallpaper they wallpapered the paper the wall with excerpts from like a math book of higher math like algebra like university stuff and this little like toddler basically the thought of a girl was re- basically reading that on the wall because they actually like never bothered to finish that of course like oh, whatever it's like a nursery who cares and she was learning to read with math formulas as a four or five-year-old. And then when she was doing uh, higher math later, like in her late teens, she's like, it all came to me. It's like, it was already all in my head. So just have this image of, you know, of Sofia Kovalevska as a child staring at the wall, staring at the book that wasn't meant for her, that was just absolutely randomly put there. And things go and clickety-click in her head and she sees, you know, that bright path ahead of her. She sees her life, is, she sees her career. And it just, there's this moment, you know, where angels fly around and say, hallelujah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So do your kids have uh, algebra equations wallpapered all over the walls and... My son is obsessed with math. Uh, he is just, he's, yeah, he loves math. So I, I'm going to do that. We're moving houses. So yes, we will have, definitely have an algebra corner there for him. Absolutely. So um, yeah. So she is, um, her, her sister, like a word about her sister was actually, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to describe that. Crazy. So she started writing 
um, stories. And uh, she was writing it behind her dad's back because she thought dad would disapprove. Because her sister Anna was sending her stories. So we're talking about Anna, Anna, uh, Anna Karvin Krukowska. So she, she sent her stuff to St. Petersburg, to Dostoevsky, no less. And he published her work <laughs> and wrote a glowing review. And she was corresponding to Dostoevsky. Eventually, dad, and he says, you know, this military Russian dad, a landowner, slave owner, whatever. He learned about that. He almost had a heart attack. He's like, my daughter, you know, prostitutes herself, <laughs> writing those stories, charging money for that. And with whom? With Dostoevsky, the guy who's been in prison, was in hard labor for like eight years. Oh my gosh. And now she says he, she wants to invite him for dinner and he's coming to our estate. Shit. I mean, what's going to happen? So, um, so it's the story of dad actually in that family is absolutely fascinating. It's when you s start somewhere and then you end up, you know, in the course of your life in a totally different place. I mean, Anna can twist her dad around her finger and her mom too. So she's like, dad, of course he's coming, blah, blah, blah. So she convinced her dad to invite Dostoevsky. And Dostoevsky became a visitor in uh, the house. And um, just uh, to the point where he actually was considering marrying her and he proposed to her uh, and she rejected him. Because Dostoevsky needed somebody who would kind of, you know, dote on him and be his literary secretary. And Anna wanted nothing. She was a free spirit. So eventually Anna, Sofia's sister, married this revolutionary, uh, ran away with him to Paris. They participated in the Parisian Commune of 1870 in the big, you know, revolutionary upheaval in Paris, were imprisoned. Uh, she escaped. Her husband was sentenced to death to basically to be hung or guillotined. I don't know what they were planning to do with her. And that's when the dad comes. So, you know, this like respectable Russian general comes to Paris with Sofia, who is already married at that time, and arranges that guy's escape from the, you know, before the Talk gallows. Talk about dad of the year. <laughs> Talk about dad of the year. I mean, helping this revolutionary guy, the hardcore Marxists, and they were as hardcore Marxists as it gets, I mean, they were house, of, house guests of Marx himself. Like, super feminist, extremely radical, uh, suffrage, the idea that we can't fight, you know, for women's rights unless we fight capitalism. And then there's this, you know, good old Russian dad helping them escape, right? Oh, brilliant, right? Oh my gosh. Right, so, success story. So yeah, so you never know. Don't underestimate your parents. But anyways, back to Sofia. So Sofia, as she grows up, uh, she wants to study sciences. Cannot do that in Mother Russia. Well, couldn't do that in Mother England at that period too. So if you wanted to be enrolled in a university, you have to go to Germany or like to Sweden. So, but in order to leave Russia as basically kind of, you know, as a woman and underage, you have to have a passport. And it's either your husband or your dad writes you a passport. And his dad basically said, like, just no way. Just I, I, I mean, I, I, one daughter, one crazy child is enough. You are not going anywhere. <laughs> so she had, she entered basically a, a fictitious marriage with a guy named Kovalevsky. That's where she got the name. Mm -hmm. how, basically, I'm trying to figure out, like, how did she do a fictitious marriage? Or did she actually just marry this person and just kind of not stick with it? She married, um, so that actually was, uh, like... A period of fictitious marriages and uh, she writes about that in, in her uh, story the nihilist girl uh, because what happened was like so she kind of rode with a wave so revolutionaries right like the people's will different uh, anarchists bakuninist uh, groups run around 
So as a revolutionary, you get tossed in prison or to send to Siberia or something. And uh, you are there, you're really sad. I mean, like, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's visiting me. I'm bored. Yeah. So what do you do? <clears throat> you, um... Mm. And, and 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 we have you know female revolutionists right so a girl would come and say i am this guy's bride we just never had chance to you know to marry consummate whatever can i visit him and then you would start visiting him and then you can get married but you get you're getting married so he may be uh, be eligible for pardon because he now he's a family man or maybe you can go to siberia with him which is an interesting so it's 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 a true marriage it's a legal marriage, but the idea is where the fictitious part comes in, which is a whole interesting like layer, is that you're not marrying for love, you're not marrying because you're attracted to each other. You're marrying because you're helping the person. So Kovalevsky married Sofia because he wanted to help her, help her get out, to get her the passport. But then they fell in love with each other, started living with each other, and had a child, eventually a girl. They actually felt really guilty about that. Because all her friends were saying, you got to be kidding me, Sophia. You are sleeping with your husband? It's a fictitious marriage, girl. Come on, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's, so she's were, the woman who was like, I'm never going to be one of those romantic girls. And then like, exactly like, yeah. yeah. And there's like, oh, I like you. You're such a nice guy. I mean, you're such a nice guy. She's like, I just, I fall in love with you. Okay. Yeah. That's a classic Hallmark movie. I know, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, like starts like really stern and then it's just like, yeah. And unfortunately, he killed himself um, later in life. Uh, he was um, kind of in a dead situation and he just chose to take his life. So she um, spent um, kind of the end of her life alone with a daughter. But uh, I, unfortunately, I'm not a mathematician. So I cannot even do justice, uh, even by a smidgen, to um, her contribution to um to the science so basically um she studied in germany she um received a professorship in stockholm later in life and um she um took the name sonia kavalevsky there the stipulation actually of professorship was that she would first year lecture in german second year lecture in swedish so while having a full-time job publishing career she actually was learning swedish oh and God. she did yeah and she did um, it, absolutely insane. So she basically had major contributions. I mean, I have a list of that stuff, at least some of it. Um, and once again, all this are just like makes zero sense to me. I have no idea what there was, that means. There was a theory based, uh, named after her, though, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes. Um, there was a thing called Kavalevska Top, and it just basically massive, massive publications, like dozens of them. She basically, she was a major contributor to math um, at the time. And it's also an interesting um, thing how kind of her interest in science intervened with her interest in literature. She had a co-author there, uh, uh, Anne Charlotte Leffler, a very famous Swedish writer, kind of uh, play, playwright. Um, and together they wrote the book, I think it's called like Battle for Love or something, for happiness. Um, the Struggle for Happiness? Strug struggle for Happiness, yeah. Yeah, and it basically, it uses a mathematical model of essentially fractals um, to see how things happen, but how they could have happened. So if you think about bifurcation, like almost like in Borges's short story, The Garden of Fork and Path, like things are unfolding predictably up to a point, but then they bifurcate and you don't like that, you don't know what sort of uh, what can happen. 
like mathematical is then you basically kind of get into this oblique area at least that's how i understand it as an extremely lay person um yeah, and she used that uh, like that model in her play, which was again things of think of being experimental and kind of inter interdisciplinary and really um, blending things. So she wrote a book of her memoirs, and she wrote um, another less known play and a book called Nihilist Girl, which kind of talks about really the revolutionary like upheaval of the eighteen sixties, and also about a girl who kind of en enters this. Um, Mm, a fictitious marriage to essentially save um, condemned men. So um, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting book. You can read it. So you been translated. You brought up the struggle for happiness. I was confused about that. Was that a book that was about math, or was it just using math as a metaphor for like society? Yeah, it's a play, and a play. it is um, using mathematical model. To look at like, so you have a family, right? It's 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 interesting. Like it's alternate like, realities, um, almost. The alternate reality, right? Yeah, like so. That's how things happen. But if we had a bifurcation here and they went the other way around, that's what would have happened to them. Okay. So, yeah. So if you think about, you know, nowadays, like I don't even know what the, would be the equivalent. We have lots of movies in that genre. Basically, I was going to ask is like how do. You in regards to that book, how do the attitudes differ from Victorian goals of happiness? But I'm not sure if that's even a relevant question for that play. No, it's just, it's, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily bring that up because yeah. um, it's, it, it, it is about, it is about domestic happiness, but it just, the, the structure itself is what makes it experimental. Like her books, the style of them, the plot are kind of, pretty much in line with the sort of the time so they, they don't really break the mold but the fact you know that she was a mathematician does and the fact that you know that she actually thought about applying mathematical kind of models to literature also does it's very interesting sonia like really did so much for like the mathematic world like <laughs> education and literature like i kind of know the reason why but i'd like to hear from your perspective like why don't like u.s western civilization learn more about sonia like if she's such a figure in the mathematic world ah uh, well in russia she's well known we have streets named after her like like she, she's she's super known she's more known in russia than marie curie i think it's honestly because it's for the same reason why for example why everybody kind of raced with marie curie but not with sonia kovalevskaya it's i think it's because of the cold war i think it's because of that kind of like disconnect from russian culture that happened where only like a trickle of russian names were coming there so it's like it's a bit of a double whammy where she was never really recognized as as a literary figure at all even by the russians um only as essentially only as a scientist while for americans like for for, for for general populace anywhere like her scientific achievements are too abstract myself included i mean i tried to understand what it is she worked with and i was like i'm done uh -huh, go read the nihilist girl right um so yeah so i think i think it's honestly just like the the legacy of the 20th century relationship between russia and uh the states that was less than ideal So I also noticed there's like a lot of similarities between Sonia and oh gosh, Durova. Yeah, I know, unpronounceable. <laughs> so right? 
No, no, no. It's like it's pretty, but it's just like it does not come naturally. To American tongues. And so once yeah. it's once I can hit it. Actually, you know what? Like we are not gonna be using her dead name. We're gonna call her Alexandra because she wanted to be called Alexandra by the end of her years. Okay. That's fair. Alexander. Okay, so between Sonia and Alexander. Good, I uh-huh. like that. So Sonia and Alexander. Um, like, do you think that Sonia was inspired? Because, like, I believe, <laughs> I believe Sonia was uh, born ten years before Alexandra uh, died. So, and he was kind of they were kind of like a, a literary figure. Do you think she read kind of their memoirs and stuff like that? Well, I think uh, the Cavalry Maiden was a common read for everybody. Whether or not she tried to identify with the author of um, that book, I don't really know. She doesn't mention that. Um, I think she... um, I honestly think she was kind of walking to the beat of her own drum. I think there was like a little bit of disconnect. And once again, the disconnect was that Alexandra for Durava, however you call um, the person, was kind of presented as a bit of an oddity. And of course, the, the, the reason why, the, why, why, uh, why they were uh, seen as an oddity was that uh, there was like no place for a woman in the army, like no normalized place for a woman in the army. So basically the idea was like... Um, wow, that is amazing, that's really cool, but we don't want our girls to do that. Like, one is enough. Like, we, we are going to read that book, we're going to admire, it's not going to be a textbook, you know. We're not going to say, oh, by the way, our curriculum for today, how to ride a horse and, you know, flail a sword, and, like, do you want to enroll, you know, in ROTC? Uh, yeah, no, not really. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think uh, for Sophia, the, the inspiration was more like her contemporary thought. Her sister was a big inspiration to her, for her. Her sister, who was a rebel, was a rebel from, you know, from very early age, who was not afraid to do whatever she wanted to do, not afraid to break the mold, not afraid to follow her dream. And basically, and Sonia was looking at her and saying, oh, my gosh, you can really do that. Like, sky is your limit. Do you want to go to Paris and become a revolutionary? Do it. You want to become a liberal journalist? Do it. And I can do it. And for me, the passion is math. So I can go to Heidelberg and study there. All I just need is a bloody passport. I mean, one thing, like, Katya and I have talked about this because, you know, we're sisters. Um, But, like, Russians have an awesome relationship with, like, heavy superstitions. Yeah. And so I... I kind of got, like, the feeling that um, Alexander didn't really have too many superstitions. But I do feel like Sonia might have had just a little bit, especially because, like, she was with her husband for, like, so many years, but they didn't even, like, get married until, like, I don't know, like, a decade later. And then she got married, and then three years later, like, he dies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Which is, like, odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm just wondering um, what kind of, like, superstitions would have been there around that time. Well, I mean, when we're talking about superstitions, we're more talking about the folk stuff. Like, I mean, um, and at that time, like, of course, some superstitions would kind of, you know, trickle up. 
So, you know, as a child growing up, both Nadezhda and Sonia would have heard their, like, nannies. Well, Nadezhda didn't really have a nanny. She had a gusar, so, I mean, she had her own thing. So, uh, but Sonia did, and her nanny loved her, and uh, she felt like her nanny was really the only person who accepted her. Uh, and she was telling her all kinds of creepiest stories that would creep the life out of her, about flying snakes and, like, devils and all that stuff. So she was sitting there just being absolutely terrified. Um, and that was a cultural background of pretty much every Russian person raised by a nanny and like basically noble, middle class, that stuff. Um, but, you know, when she, like later in life, when she became a scientist, I'm pretty sure she completely just disconnected from anything related to superstition, uh, more so because it was important for her to like to present herself as uh, as a serious serious person, a person who is reliable, who is trustworthy, who is not, you know, a woman child, a person, you know, who is a scientist, who is rational, who is thinking clearly, who is capable of maintaining a discourse with men, uh, all that. Just like for, Nad for, for Nadezhda, it was um, important at the time that she went to the army to basically present herself as the brave guy, as the uh, um, person who can rush into the battle, a person who can pull the officer out and uh, save that officer. So basically, it just how do you craft yourself in the society that by default views you as a somewhat lower being? Or not a lower being, but a gentler sex, and you're not allowed to participate in the same, you know, fun stuff. They were both uh, reaching for some sort of, like, being able to be, establish themselves as capable. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, once again, you, you still have to establish it on the society's terms, because it's the society that's doing the accepting here, right? If you would like to listen to the longer episode, that'll be available on the Patreon page. That's Women Travel, women spelled with an X. And um, then you'll be able to learn more about superstitions, the culture in Russia, and Russian art. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Katya. Uh, you've got to get going, so... You are so welcome. It was a pleasure. And I'm pretty sure we're going to have you on again, because that was great. <laughs> I would love to talk about women in Gulag. That would, that's another pet topic of mine. Gulag, gulag, gulag. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, I'm going to Gulag, which is basically my nursery, which is my personal Gulag. <laughs> Don't quote me to anybody. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to go feed my children. Okay. Well, one, one Ooh, of them. All yeah. right. As I'm being dragged to gulag, the nursery gulag. and I'm showing two fingers. <laughs> uh, right? Yes. All right. Okay. See you. See ya. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Bye-bye. <laughs>